I love that. Who? Okay. So, this morning's session. Look on your programs. It says this is this session is entitled "The Character of Love." And I guess I suppose I ought to give you the the health warning that this you might find this the most controversial, in some ways the most challenging of the sessions that we do. Make no apologies for the fact, as I said, that first session yesterday was called I entitled a new bookshelf. This is a different way. This is a new way of thinking about God. It's a new way of understanding who He is and how He relates to us and what Jesus did. It's important that we really learn to see with the right eyes, as I was talking about yesterday. To see with the eyes of our heart. That's why Paul prayed that the eyes of our heart should be enlightened. See, when we see with the eyes of our minds, when we see with the eyes opened by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, basically in the background, God is really just, in a sense, some kind of cosmic policeman. He's an enforcer of right and wrong. And we say things like, God must punish sin. And it sounds right. But have you ever asked yourself, why? What, what compels God? Is there something bigger than God that he has to conform to that says, you've got to punish that? Or are we saying that there's something in him that gets so uptight and offended and, and he's love? We say things like, and I've had it quoted back at me so many times, God cannot look at sin. You know, that's there in, it's written down, it's written down in Habakkuk, except it's quoted out of context, actually, because that's Habakkuk saying, I see all this stuff around me, but I've been told you can't look at sin, but you haven't done anything about it, why not? I mean, come on. The scripture says that the eyes of the Lord roam across the whole earth. So what's he been looking at ever since, ever since the garden? He's been looking at sin. He's been looking at your sin. He's been looking at my sin. This, I, I, we don't have, don't have time to, to go into things, but we understand that God is not some cosmic police, policeman. He's not sitting up there all uptight about the stuff that we've done and that other people have done turning away his eyes because it's so horrible and so offensive and all the rest of it. 
it completely changes our perception of him. It actually completely understands our, uh, changes our perception of what happened at the cross. And we've lived through so much of church history with a, a horrible distortion of what the character of our Father is like. One of the um, longest standing sort of pictures of um, what salvation is supposed to be all about was, was developed by, by a guy called Tertullian. He was a Roman theologian back in the 4th, 5th century, something like that. Um, and actually, it doesn't conform to any understanding that the earlier church would have had. But it's, it's infiltrated its way into our thinking. And, and the picture is this. The picture is of, of this, the divine courtroom, where God is sitting at the, as the judge in the divine courtroom. And, and I come in, and, and God looks at me, and he says, guilty, condemned as a sinner. And Jesus stands up as, as quotes, our advocate, and says, no, 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 you can't condemn them, I took the punishment. And we've, in one form or another, we've most of us grown up with that. Do you know what? That's heresy. That's heresy. Because it says that the Father and the Son have completely different motivations. It puts a divide between the Father and the Son. It says that the Father is motivated to judge and the Son stands up and says, no, 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 you can't do that. That's heresy. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. There can be no separation of purpose, no separation of objective, no separation of thought between the Father and the Son because I and the Father are one. And so you may say to me, well, it, but it says inter, Jesus intercedes for us before the throne of grace. It's very interesting. I, I, I would have had a look at that, that word intercedes. It's actually only used five times. The actual word that's used there. And once is this one. And the other times it talks about Elijah complaining about Israel. And all those times that Elijah stood before God and moaned about the rest of the people. Oh, that was interesting. And I, did, I, I went, to my, went to my Strong's concordance and, and looked it up. And I love this because it says that literally the word intercede literally means to chance upon. And the implication is to confer about. And I thought, wow, because if we, inter we interpret that as plead or intercede, it's like we're presupposing that courtroom scene. Actually, I think it means this. Jesus is always talking to the Father about you. He's always conferring about you with the Father. 
His heart is always towards you. He's always talking about you. They're always sitting there. Yeah? Oh, wow! That right now, Jesus and the Father are sitting and, and they're, they're talking about they're talking about Roseanne. They're talking about John. They're talking about Sean. They're talking about Jane. They're talking about what's going on with them. They're talking about how much they love you. Wow. Well, I'll sit down sometime and, and just ask, ask Papa, hey, what are you, Jesus, saying about me? But when it says he intercedes before the throne of grace, he's saying, Papa and I are always talking about you, always thinking about you, always conferring about you. Oh, man. I love that. Oh. Okay, back to what I'm supposed to be saying here. 1 John 4.18 says, says this. It says, perfect love casts out fear. Doesn't it? Remember I said last night, the first symptom of the fall was shame. Shame which led to physical hiding, blame shifting. That's what shame does, isn't it? Yeah, the blame shifting. Oh, well, this, this woman that you gave me, says Adam. Oh, well, she, sa- she says that was the serpent. Shift the blame. You know, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> boom, boom. Oh, dear, I'm sorry. <laughs> Because shame says, I've done something wrong, I'm going to be punished. Notice the wrong tree coming out. Well, was there punishment? I said last night, no. They may have had to have been forced out of the garden, but it wasn't about punishment. Um, and we talk about the curse, don't we? You know, the things that, that God said. And we, we interpret them and talk about them as curses. You, not curses. He's just saying, look, these are going to be the consequences of what you've done. You've taken yourself into a place of shame. You've taken your place in yourself into a place of independence. You've taken yourself into a place of self-sufficiency. That means you're going to have to work hard. And I said last night, living out of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil takes you into slavery. You're going to have to work hard now because you've, decided, you've, you've taken upon yourself the choice to be independent. So you're going to have to make things happen. He said to the man. And to the woman, he said, he said that you know, shame is going to emotionally screw you up. It's like it emotionally screws up the man. And it's not that I now give the man to be an authority over you and your heart and all the rest of it. It's that, hey, what's going to happen is that that relationship that you had of complete oneness, you understand, they had a complete oneness before that time. So much so that they only had one name. If you look at it, the woman was not called Eve until after they left the garden. 
And it was Adam who gave her the name Eve. It wasn't God. Before that, they both had, they were both, when he said Adam, he was speaking to both of them because they were so completely united. And he was saying, look, because you, you've done this, because shame's come in, because of all that, that relationship you had is going to be screwed up. It's about consequences. It's not about curses. There is no punishment in love. On there. Never, ever, 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 ever going to use the word punish in relation to you. Because you see, you read that scripture in, in 1 John 4 and it says, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and there is no fear in love. See, he's saying there's no punishment in love. Loving punishment does not exist according to that scripture. God will never punish you. He's not interested in punishing. That's not his character. That's not the character of love. Another thing that people sometimes come back to me and say, well, well, what about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Well, that's what it says. It may be the beginning of wisdom, but it's only the beginning of wisdom. I think of it a bit like these little um, bits of plastic that we well, used to have them all, all over the place in here. But, you know, you know, there's these little things on the wall here with little three square holes in them. And, um, you know, what we, we, we do with our, with our little ones, we, we don't want them sticking their fingers in those little square holes. Um, but it's no good trying to explain to a, an 18-month-old starting to to uh, crawl around the room that um, you know, what's going to happen and what's all about and all about electricity and, and the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's 240 volts and it's at 60 hertz and that does nasty things to your body and you, you can't, you know so you do two things you stick a socket protector in and you say, hurt you make them a little bit a little bit afraid of putting their fingers in the in the sockets. But, I, I mean, nobody's afraid of the three square holes now, are they? You know, we, we, we have learned there's just sensible. It's intended to keep them safe. And that's, that's what this idea of the fear of the Lord is about. It's about keeping us safe until Jesus comes. It's very interesting that in Luke 1, in Luke 1, 74, you know, when, when Zacharias is, is there in the temple and, and, and he's holding God in his arms and he's prophesying over this, over this little baby, one of the things that he says is that part of the coming of, of this little one is that we should serve the Lord 
without fear. That's what it says. Without fear. It was part of Jesus' coming that we should be able to serve without fear. And we're going to look at this later. He has, he has, he has always, always, always had the longing in his heart and the intention that he would have sons, not servants. Say it now, we'll say it again. He has plenty of servants. There are lots of angels. And if he needs any more, he can make some more. Because they're angels. He's got plenty of those. He doesn't need more servants. You might look at it it another way. You could say, the fear of the Lord is not about us being afraid of him. It's a gift that he gave us to protect us from consequences whilst he heals us. You could say, and this is why Jacobson says this, he says that if you you don't love God, you might be well advised to fear him because it's going to stop you doing some very, very stupid and very, very damaging and very, very dangerous things. But if you are head over heels in love with him, to the extent that you are living in the experience of his love, you won't actually be interested in doing the things that displease him. You don't, you don't want to displease the person that, that you love. As, as his love infuses your being, it's not necessary, you don't need it. Because love changes you. We're going to come with a whole session on, on this later on. That love, his love transforms you. And maybe it's worth just identifying here. Um, just to mention, we sometimes kind of, again... It kind of gets thrown back at. Well, what about the, you know, the wrath of God released against? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, what is the wrath of God? Is, is is the wrath of God this like like I've got so angry over this? I'm finally going to. First thing to say is that the wrath of God is never released against people. The wrath of God is released against sin. Sin is a principle. Sin is an outworking of... You almost say sin is like a disease. It's a rottenness. It's taken control of... of. I think the best picture of wrath that I ever heard was a story that that Wayne Jacobson tells of of one sitting... sitting You're sitting in the garden. They they live in California, so they have lots of of sunshine. He was sitting in the garden on his hammock and uh, his wife was, was, was pottering around and their little son was playing around in the garden. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the little one started screaming. They looked over and they saw that he'd, he'd stumbled into a, into a bee's nest. And he was surrounded by these bees. And, you know, he's absolutely screaming. 
Um, and Wayne says, his wife, oh, hey, you know what you do. His wife just took one look at this and it was like she was off. And the look on her face. And he says, because he said, he said, took me a while, you know, you know what men are like, he said. It took me a while to get out of the hammock. And <laughs> uh, but by the time he got out of the hammock, she was, she was, you know, she was there. And, and, but he said he saw the, his little one looked up and it's like he, said, he saw this look on his mum's face and whatever terror he felt of the bees, the look on his mum's face is just... Because, you know, he, he didn't understand. What he saw, he saw wrath on his mum's face and he thought it was directed at him. But of course, you know and I know, that was directed against the bees. The wrath of God, he says, is the full force of everything that he is. Directed against anything that would harm the object of his affection. If I can get it out. (laughs) The wrath of God is the full force of everything that he is directed against whatever would damage the object of his affection. His wrath is never going to be directed at you. Ever. His wrath is directed against anything that will damage you. And at the end of time, that's where God's wrath is directed. Against that which has damaged and destroyed, that which has killed, that which has disrupted and sweep it out of existence. Its power's been broken at the cross and he'll sweep it out of existence. And the quote, judgment that's to come is just simply this. That if people hold on to and won't let go of that stuff, it's going to be a consequence. They get swept away with it. But that's not the intention. That's not what the wrath is coming to do. The wrath is coming to make things right. Seeing with the right eyes. Do you see how we see our Father so in such a distorted way? Seeing with the right eyes takes me on to, to 1 Corinthians 13. Such a famous chapter, isn't it? Take it in context. There were no chapter divisions in the, uh, when the, the book was originally written. You know, Paul didn't write his letter in chapters. 
she, she wrote a letter to the church in Corinth to try and help them out with some stuff that was mucking them up. So chapter 12, which follows directly on before, he start, he's talking about gifts. Talk about spiritual gifts and how to use and not use spiritual gifts and all about, you know, all this power stuff and prophecy and tongues and all the rest of it. And then at the end of the chapter he says, but I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. In other words, okay, all this stuff about gifts and power and all the rest of it is really good, really valuable. You need to, you need to honour it. You need to learn how to, how to use it properly. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But that's actually not what it's all about. What it's all about is whether or not you have love. Yeah? And the focus is on not whether you do love, but whether you have love. Whether love has taken residence in you. Whether it has become part of you. That's what actually counts. Just as an aside, maybe all this focus on signs and power and all the rest of it is just fruit from the good side of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They are good. But maybe actually our focus on those is, is more to do with wanting to look good, wanting to look right, wanting to present, be able to present where we are and what we believe in our God as being the right thing instead of about a more excellent way, which is love. This is about our image of God. He is, I guess we're going to, yeah. He is and he always has been. Father. That's the nature of who he is. Jeremiah 3.19 says, I thought, I, I thought, how I long to make you my sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I thought you'd call me my father and never turn away from me. Right back then, God revealed in his heart, I want to treat you as sons. That's my hope. That's my longing. And that's who Jesus revealed him to be remember Jesus is the way to the Father, Jesus isn't the destination John 15, 15 Jesus said no longer do I call you servants but I call you friends remember that? that's pretty good Interesting, actually, because I never, never actually saw him treating the, the disciples as though they were his servants. So he's not just talking to them. Yeah, this is this is Father talking to us, and Jesus is saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not interested in calling you servants. I'm calling you my friends." And that's wonderful, but. In John 20, after the resurrection, when Jesus meets Mary in the garden, he said a much more amazing thing. 
so amazing that, that I believe we lose, we've lost the impact of it somehow. Remember what he said. He said, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. understand what he's saying he's saying that what I have now what I have done has now put you in the same relationship with Father God as I have he is my father and your father he's my God and your God he's your father my father as much as he's Jesus' father. It's no longer father, Jesus, me. It's father, Jesus. He's my brother. I stand in the same footing with the father as he does. Twice in John 16 he says, in that day, talking about after, after the, the resurrection. In that day, he says, you won't ask me anything, but you'll ask the Father. You won't ask me anything, because you'll have direct access to the Father. He's your dad too. You don't need to ask me for stuff. You can ask dad ask him directly you have the same relationship the Holy Spirit scripture says he is the spirit of adoption and, and we have all kinds of ideas about adoption because we have a legal framework in this country for something called adoption you know, and, and it's, uh, adoption is about somebody who was outside of, of the family, outside of a natural relationship, being brought in, being chosen and being brought in to have, have a, a, a relationship. And, and, and that's a lovely picture. But the thing is, he's always been father. We've never been outside. We may have put ourselves away and, and, and orphaned ourselves, as I'm going to talk about this afternoon, but actually we were never outside. But, but yet I have to understand that adoption didn't mean the same thing in those days. Adoption, the word literally means son-making. And, and what happened was that the, the head of a Roman household, um, you know, a Roman man would have a wife and, and, and he would have children um, and he would have slave girls and he would have children by them and, and there would be temple prostitutes and he might end up having might have children by all sorts of means and, and there would be people he brought in from outside particular slaves that, that, that he was particularly fond of or whatever and, and what happened on the day of, of adoption the day of son making he would gather the family all this extended family together and he would announce who amongst his offspring were going to be considered his children? Who were the ones who were going to inherit? Spirit of adoption. 
comes to tell us that we really are his sons and we really are going to inherit and he acknowledges us as sons. Publicly, this is my son. This one is going to inherit. This one is special in my heart. Oh! One Corinthians six seventeen says, "Anyone joins to the Lord is one spirit with Him." Oh, I don't have time to go into one, but don't you think that's wonderful? One spirit with the Father. So back to one Corinthians thirteen. Okay, read it very quickly first. Okay, we've all, we all know it, but let's, let's read it. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Love doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. God is love. So when it says love is, you could say, God is. And, and I guess I can't put it better than I'm going to read you a short section from a book by a guy called Darren Hufford, a book called The Misunderstood God. And he says this, he says, about 1 Corinthians 13, he says, God is incredibly patient. He understands everything in your heart. He knows why you do what you do and is never surprised or caught off guard. God is kind and wants you to feel his touch in your heart, that heart he created to long for him, for love. God never envies anyone or anything. He never desires to take for himself what others have. He longs to give away all he had and he's never tempted to take things back because he doesn't get enough attention. God doesn't boast about the highest truths about himself. He willingly lowers himself even lower than you just to lift you up. God is not proud, holding to his perfection and reminding us that he doesn't need anyone. He desires a relationship with you and me and he continually makes himself vulnerable just to make that possible. God is never rude. He doesn't leave anything unfinished or unspoken. He is incapable of giving anyone the silent treatment or playing hide and seek when they're earnestly seeking him. He makes everything about himself known and has no desire to keep anything hidden from you. God cannot be self-seeking. He's gratified and fulfilled when you are praised and honoured. His eyes are always seeking the best for you and he's never worried about what he gets in return. He isn't provoked easily or ever angered beyond his desire for complete love. He is not high maintenance and he never wants you to walk in fear of offending or hurting him. He keeps no record of the wrong things you've done because he refuses to call you by the name of your past. He doesn't hold anything over your head but continually wipes your record clean so that he can clearly focus on your heart. God doesn't delight in evil and he's never tempted to follow lies or fantasies. He doesn't desire romantic notions but the real you. He can't countenance anything that would benefit his kingdom at your expense. He rejoices in the truth about you because he sees who you truly are and it's beyond wonderful to him. God always protects you from caving into pressure, despair or anguish. 
If you'll simply ask him, he will always provide the strength needed to hold you through the storms of life and carry you in his strong, own strong arms to your intended purpose as his own irreplaceable child. God always trusts you with his heart open, heart doors open at all times, without exception. He always hopes in you because he knows the endless truth of your never-ending story. God always perseveres, proving who he is, who he is who he claims to be. He stands through the storm and walks through the fire simply to express his love for you. He will never fail you, never fall short, never fall out of love, because he's made of love, the very source of it all. This is the character of love. You know, there's, there's, there's some of the things that kind of stick out for me. You know, love does not demand its own way. So God does not demand his own way. Now there's an interesting one to work through. God is not more interested in his purposes than he is in your welfare. You are not some pawn that he put here to fulfill some incomprehensible divine purpose in eternity and he's not moving you around like a chessboard in the hope that he'll fit into, you'll fit into his plan. You cannot miss God's plan for you because what he is interested in is the relationship that he has with you. He is not insisting on his own way. He is not boastful. He is not proud. Somehow or other, we think very often that we have to say, oh, we're going to do this, we'd like to do this, God, and we'd like you to do this, and oh yes, we'll make sure we give you all the glory. Do you think he minds? Do you think he's that insecure? He really isn't. You don't have to. He knows your heart. Your heart is after him. He knows. He will get glory out of your love, out of your wholeness. One of the, one of the very old te- teachers of, of, of the church said, the glory of God is a man made whole. God is not insecure. doesn't have to persuade anyone of his glory. His glory just is. God is love. And so all of those things that it says love is, God is. God is your father and my father. He always has been father. We often say to people, he, that's who he is. God's just his job. Who he is, his father. He's my father. And so I read it, my father is patient and kind. My father is not jealous or boastful or My father does not demand his own way. My father is not irritable and my father keeps no record of being wronged. 
My father does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. My father never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. My father. So I'll stop there for this session. Take a half an hour or so. Find some place to get alone. Get alone with 1 Corinthians 13. Look at it. My Father is. God is. Journal about it. Ask Him. Where, where is that not my experience of you? What is it that I'm believing, thinking about you and your character that doesn't fit with this, which is Scripture? See what he says. Open your hearts allow the reality of the character of love to begin to take root let it begin to change you it's not some intellectual proposition to dissect it's the heart of love to connect with an experience so I bless you to find his smile find a little bit more of who he is and what he's like. She spend just a, a half an hour or so quietly in his presence with him.